Revelation chapter 14. This means we're about two-thirds of the way through Revelation. It's hard to believe. But last week we covered verses 1 through 13, and we saw two things. First of all, we saw that there were 144,000 people in heaven singing a new song. This is in John's vision. His first vision is the people of God in heaven singing a new song, the song of deliverance. And then the second thing we saw were three angels announcing the downfall of Rome. It said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, which was a code word for the city of Rome. Now this week we're going to pick up at verse 14, and John has another vision. You see that in verse 14. He says, then I look. So there's this is all part of a vision. And in this vision, he jumps ahead. Uh, the scene that he sees, it takes place at the end of the age. So that's something that you need to mark in your minds. This scene is a picture of ultimate judgment. And we get a glimpse into what judgment's going to be like at the end of the age. So we're going to cover verses 14 through 20. And I'm going to divide it into two sections. Section number one is going to be verses 14 through 16. And we're going to see what we're going to call the reaping of the grain harvest. The reaping of the grain harvest. And then section 2 is verses 17 through 20. And this is the gathering of the grape harvest. Now remember, this is a vision. Uh, when we talk about the reaping of a grain harvest, we're not talking about grain. And we're not talking about grapes. This is all symbolic language. The grain and the grapes represent people. This is what's going to happen at the end of the age. This is going to be what a judgment's like, and it's referring to people. And in verses 14 through 16, we're going to have a positive scene. People are being reaped to eternal life. And then verses 17 through 20, representing the grapes representing people, that's going to be a gathering together for destruction. So at the end of the age, some people are going to inherit eternal life. And at the end of the age, some people are going to be judged and destroyed. So let's look at section number 1, verses 14 through 16. So we see it's a vision. He said, then I looked. And it must have been something startling because he says, and behold, <clears throat> caught his attention. What did he see? A white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown. Now, we know that this is Jesus, because back in chapter 1, he's called the Son of Man. So this is identified as Jesus. So he sees Jesus, and he sees Jesus on a cloud. Now what in the world is going on here? Literal cloud? Is this Jesus coming back on a literal cloud? How about on the day of his coming if there's no clouds in the sky? We got trouble, don't we? Does it mean he has to only come back on a cloudy day? This is all symbols. And clouds in the book of Revelation are means of conveyance. They are pictures of the way people get from heaven to earth. And what John sees is Christ coming down to earth. And he's floating down to earth on a cloud. It's all sim symbolic. And so he sees the Son of Man, Jesus, coming from heaven to earth, being conveyed by a cloud. I don't think he's literally going to be on the cloud. 
Now, another thing that you see here in verse 14 is that he has on his head a golden crown, uh, a victor's crown. So this means that he is a ruler. He is king. Kings wear crowns. And he's a victorious ruler. He's coming back as victor and to take control of the world, take charge of this world. Now, this vision that you see in verse 14 is very similar to one that was in Daniel chapter 7, which tells us something. It tells us that years before John received his vision, God gave a very similar vision to the prophet Daniel. And you can compare those two, and you see a similar event taking place, the Son of Man on a cloud receiving a kingdom. And then it says this, in verse, at the end of verse 14, it's very interesting. He says, and in his hand he had a sharp sickle. Notice he doesn't have a sword in this vision. We will see there's a sword in Revelation 19, but in this vision he doesn't have a sword. So he's not coming in a sense to conquer, to destroy and kill, like just slay people. What's he doing with a sickle? A sickle is used to reap a harvest. And so this is a reaping mission that he is on. And then you see in verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap. Now notice where the angel comes from. He comes from the temple, meaning the heavenly temple. Literal temple? Don't think so. I don't think they offer sacrifices in heaven. I don't think there's an altar where there's sacrifices that are given. What he's saying is, what was the temple? The temple was a place where God's presence was. And so what we have is, in the vision, John sees an angel coming from the presence of God. And he makes an announcement. He has a message for Jesus. And what's his announcement? Thrust, look in the middle of verse 15, thrust in your sickle and reap. Now wait a second. What's going on? Here's an angel giving Jesus orders. What's Jesus doing taking orders from angels? If anybody gives orders, shouldn't be Jesus be giving the orders? What's he doing receiving orders from an angel? <clears throat> well, the angel is simply a delivery boy. Where does he come from? The presence of God. What does he have? He has a message. He's delivering a message to Jesus. Now what's the reason for this message? What's the goal? Look what he says. Thrust in your sickle and reap. For, here's the reason, because the time has come for you to reap. The time has come for you to reap. Now remember when Jesus was talking about his, his coming? Remember what he said? He said that uh, of that day and hour, no one knows. Not the angels in heaven nor the Son of Man, but only who? My Father who's in heaven. So God says, now's the time. He's the only one that knows. And guess what He does? He sends the angel and tells Jesus, now's the time to read. And so all the angel's doing, in a sense, is delivering the message from the presence of the Father. And that's important that we see that. And so, look what He says at the end of verse 15. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. The harvest of the earth is ready to be picked. Now he's not talking about a grain harvest literally. He's talking about people. He's saying that uh, 
This picture here symbolizes the saints on earth. And now it's time to gather the saints. And when we go to Revelation 19, because this is simply a glimpse of another chapter in the future, you're going to see that God gathers the saints to himself. And he raptures us out of here. Those who are alive are, are, are changed, transformed, and those that are dead are resurrected. And so this is a gathering of the saints. Okay? And then he says this in verse 16. And so he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, all symbolic language, and the earth was reaped. This great grain harvest, this wheat harvest was, was reaped. Uh, so this is a glimpse of the ultimate, uh, this is a glimpse of the future, the ultimate judgment when the saints are gathered and the unbelievers are judged. So that's scene number one. It sort of makes sense, doesn't it? So you see how in apocalyptic language, how it's always important to look at the symbols, try to find the meaning behind the symbol. Now look at scene number two. This is the grape harvest. You had the grain harvest, now the grape harvest. Look at verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple from the presence of God, which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. Now what's the difference between scene number one and scene number two? Scene number one, who has the sickle? Jesus. Who has the sickle this time? An angel has the sickle this time. So an angel, not Christ, is going to do the reaping of this great harvest. Look at verse 18. And another angel came from the altar, meaning from heaven, who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, the angel number one. And he said, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth. And so what we do is angel number one with the sickle gets an order from angel number two that he is to thrust in the sickle. Now notice that angel number two is connected with fire. And fire is often sort of symbolic of judgment, especially in John's writing. John uses fire a lot with judgment. And this is a judgment scene. And I think that you will see this very clearly. Look what he says at the end of verse 18. Here's the reason for the reaping. For her grapes are fully ripe. Right. The grapes are ready to be cut down. So now we've seen two scenes. One is that grain is being reaped and gathered in representing the saints for eternal life, and now grapes are being reaped, and this is probably a judgment scene, and in fact I know it's a judgment scene, there's a difference between scene one and scene two, scene one is eternal life, scene two is judgment, how do you know that, look at verse 19, so the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and he gathered the vine of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the what? <clears throat> Wrath of God. So those represented by the grapes are people who are going to be judged. It's not grapes that are being judged. You realize that? People that are being judged. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. 
He has trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. So even songwriters in the past realized that this was a scene of judgment and the grapes represent people who are being judged. Now look at verse 20. And the winepress was trampled outside the city. What city? Outside the city. What city? See, when you read that, you have to ask that question, don't you? You don't know what's going on. Now, if I were an English teacher, I would tell you to hunt for the closest antecedent. Would I ask you to do that? And if I ask, well, what's the closest city? What's the closest antecedent here? I would look back in verse 8, and it would say, and another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen. Babylon is fallen. That's the closest antecedent. Does he mean that this judgment's going to take place outside the city of Rome? Well, if I were an English teacher, that's what it would mean. But John's not an English teacher, and that's not what he means. <coughs> He's not writing an essay. He's recording a vision. Visions aren't logical things. Visions are like your dreams. They don't quite make sense. You have to figure them out. You have to interpret them. So what's another option here? Outside the city. What could be another city where it could take place? Holy city. It could be Jerusalem. We know that there's going to be a judgment in the Valley of Megiddo, for example. Could it be that? Well, it could be something like that. But visions are not necessarily logical. But it could be that. It could be Rome. It could be Jerusalem. But maybe it simply is generic. So he simply says that the wine press was trampled outside the city, meaning outside the city gates. Uh, and that would make sense. No particular city. Just symbolic language that you would understand if you were a Jew living in the first century. Because the normal place where wicked people were executed was always outside the city gate. Executions were not take, did not take place inside cities. They always took place outside the city. And uh, maybe uh, that's what he's just trying to say. He's saying, to let you know that this is a judgment. Where was Jesus executed? Outside the city. So maybe he's just saying, just letting you know that this is a judgment scene and these are people who are considered wicked. Now, you could die in the city. <clears throat> An average person you know, would take their last breath in the city. They'd be buried in the city. But guess what? Not wicked people. If you were going to execute a wicked person, you executed that wicked person outside the city. And these are wicked people that are being judged. So they're being judged outside the city. Could be outside the New Jerusalem, couldn't it? Where have the saints been gathered? The New Jerusalem. Maybe this is outside the New Jerusalem. But guess what? It means that these are wicked people being executed. Now look at middle of verse 20. And blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Some translations say stadias. Uh, now, here's the point. <clears throat> is this literal? Was there a, is God going to judge people by sticking them in a wine press? 
that how he's doing it? Do it? No, this wine press isn't a literal thing, is it? Uh, the blood coming up to a horse's bridle for 1,600 furloughs of stadia. Is that literal? If it's literal, it means the blood runs for 183.8 miles. If you're going to take it literally. That's what 1,600 furloughs is. 1,083.8 miles. You think it's literal? You think it stops right at the 1.83.8 and doesn't go 81, 82? You see how ridiculous it is when you start taking apocalyptic language and you take it literally? Is it up to a horse's bridle? Well, how high is the horse's bridle? Is every horse the same size? Which horse's bridle? Oh, the average horse's bridle. See, that doesn't make sense. Uh, what he's describing is a horrible scene. This is the stuff of which nightmares are made. See? That's what he's describing. It's a picture. Look, how he said, you want to know how horrible this judgment's going to be? Now look, we've all seen horses cross rivers. Haven't you seen a horse cross a river up to its bridle? Imagine a horse having to swim up to its neck in a river of blood. That's nightmarish. He's saying this is going to be a horrible thing, this judgment. This is apocalyptic language. It's not to be taken literally. In fact, the same exact language is found in First Enoch. Not even a book in the Bible. You know Jude? Remember when Jude writes his letter, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus? He quotes Enoch. He says, Enoch says, when the Lord comes, he'll come with 10,000 times 10,000 of his saints. He quotes from First Enoch. This is a quote out of First Enoch. It's a it's a it's figurative language, and it's something that that's it, it, it doesn't mean that First Enoch wasn't true. It doesn't mean that uh, the vision that Enoch had wasn't true. Enoch's vision wasn't inspired, but doesn't mean it's not true. In First Enoch, he says the horses will walk through the blood of sinners up to their chest. Quote right out of Enoch, and then second. Edris, which is an apocryphal book, and some Catholic Bibles have that in it. It says this, And there shall be blood from the sword up to the horse's belly. So this was a common saying. And it's not to be taken literally. It's to be taken figuratively. It means simply this. When judgment comes, it's going to be horrible. Not literal. This is not a literal picture. Not a literal wine press. Not literal blood for 183.8 miles. Not literal blood up to a horse's bridle. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, first of all, it would be common sense. I think that, that would be number one. But number two, look at the number. 1,600 furlongs or stadium. Uh, that's a square number. 1,600. It's 40 times 40. Does that sound? 40 times 40. What's 40? 40 speaks of... A duration of time, a complete duration of time. Moses on the backside of that, 40 years. You mean you wasn't there 40 years in one day? No. It's symbolic language. 40 years in the wilderness. Not 40 years in one minute? You think they stepped right to the promised land at the end of 40 years in one minute? No, it speaks of a duration of time. A complete duration of time. Jesus says, Israel, 30 A.D., 
This generation won't pass until you see every stone in this temple destroyed. When's the temple destroyed? 70 AD, 40 years. You mean right to the day? No, he wasn't talking about that. Simply means there's a duration of time, a complete duration of time, and when that time runs its course, then the judgment. And when you see that, what he's saying is that God's wrath has reached its breaking point, and evil has run its course. It's a complete duration of time, and now judgment's going to fall. How bad is it? It's nightmarish. It's like horses having to swim in blood up to their... Can you imagine that? I saw a movie last night or some television show, you know, where somebody got shot and their blood was all over the floor. And you went, that was just a little puddle of blood. They're trying to make you sick when you saw the scene. Show you how horrible it was going to be. So they had this dark blood running out. We knew it was all... It wasn't real blood. I mean, we knew what it represented. It represented, this, is a, this was a messy crime. See? And this is going to be bad. This is a judgment falls. It's going to be nightmarish. It speaks of the enormity of God's judgment. When evil is defeated and the saints are delivered. So, let me sort of just summarize this little passage here. Satan was defeated. When was he defeated? Well, historically, Satan was defeated. When Jesus died on the cross and he was resurrected. Historically, Satan was defeated at the resurrection of Christ. Uh, ultimately, he's going to be defeated. Evil is going to be defeated. When? At the resurrection of the saints. Evil was initially defeated at the resurrection of Christ, Easter morning. It will ultimately be defeated when the saints are gathered in, and we're resurrected, and then judgment falls. So verses 14 through 20 are divided into two sections. Section 14 through 16. The grain is gathered in verses for eternal life, for deliverance, for salvation. In verses 17 through 20, the grapes are gathered for judgment, for destruction. That's ultimate judgment. Now, when you look at that passage... Uh, there's a hidden lesson here. It's really not hidden. It's, it's wide open. It's just one that we don't recognize in the 21st century. But it's one that the early church would have readily recognized. There are two crops here. There's a grain crop and there is a grape crop. From grain you make bread. From grapes you make bread. Bread and wine. And when the early church would see this, they would say bread and wine, and guess what they would think about? They think about the Lord's Supper. But guess what? We don't we read this here, and guess what we think about? We think about all the symbols and all this kind of stuff, try to figure it all out. See? The bread from grain, bread's made. From grapes, the wine is made, one representing salvation, one representing destruction, judgment. So when the early church ate the Lord's Supper, they ate it with a much better understanding than we do. I'm convinced of that. Remember on the night that he was betrayed, what did Jesus do? He took the bread and he took the wine and he related to the cross. Bread broken from you and then he eventually says to the church is the bread. We are the body of Christ. This is my body. 
And then the wine, which is going to be the establishment of the new covenant. And on the cross, we see the breaking of the bread and we see the pouring out of His blood. blood bread representing His body and the, the wine in the cup representing His blood. And He dies on the cross. And when He dies on the cross, historically, He secures salvation for every Christian. Every believer. But when He dies on the cross and He's raised again, He also does something else. Historically, Satan is judged. Historically. And when we take the communion, remember what He said, when you do this, do this what? In remembrance of Me. And so the early church looked back and when they saw the cross, they saw, that's our salvation. Oh, that's judgment of evil, historically speaking. But we're to do it until when? Until He comes. We're to look future. And we look to the point where he's going to gather in the grain crop. He's going to gather in the believers and we are resurrected and we're saved. And then he's going to gather in the grapes and they're going to be trampled under his judgment. And ultimately, we will be saved and the evil doers will be judged. At which time, the scripture says, and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Christ and his God. So you can see there's so much in a little passage like this that we miss because we're not connected with the early church. See? We always want to look at things in a spectacular way. There's a guy out there named Harold Camping right now. There are billboards all around the city. He's the president and owner of Family Radio, sort of like KCBI. It's a nationwide radio network, however. A Christian radio network. And he has a He's predicting now that Christ is going to return and judgment's going to fall on the world May 22nd. May 22nd. Based on what? Yeah, no man knows. Now there's a good example. No one knows the day or hour, but he's given us the day, May 22nd. Now this guy made these predictions before, and I know this guy. He's not a nut. He's, a, he's an educated man. He's not stupid. I've heard him debate with major Bible prophecy experts. A number of years ago, he debated with Dr. Walvoord and different people from different schools, and he could present his case. But guess what he's done? He takes the numbers, and he crunches those numbers, and he figures them out what they mean literally, and then guess what happens? He makes his speculation, and he's wrong every time. I will guarantee you that what, what day is the 22nd of May? Is that the Sunday? Uh, well, I will guarantee you the following Sunday, the 29th, we'll all be around. <laughs> now, I'm going to make that prediction. Okay? Unless one of us happens to die. But we're not going to be raptured out of here. I can guarantee you that. That's what speculation does, you see. So, what John is doing, he's laying out this and speculation, guess what that does? That doesn't comfort anybody, does it? Does speculation comfort you? Oh, it does. It, it satisfies your curiosity. But it doesn't comfort you. Now this message that I just gave here, is that a comfort? To know that evil is going to be judged, ultimately, and you're resurrected, and the kingdoms of the... Yes, we know in the end, no matter what happens between now and then, in the end, we're going to be resurrected and Christ is going to come and we're all going to be gathered into His kingdom. See? But speculation, all that does is satisfy the curiosity. We'll pick up at chapter 15, verse 1 next week.
Father, we thank you for your word and how it's so rich and we're starting to get a sense of how the early church was able to survive in the midst of persecution knowing that in the end, ultimate salvation, not only of their soul, but of their body would be accomplished. One for them at the cross and at the resurrection and carried out fully at the second coming. Oh Lord, help us to be faithful to the end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.